Welcome to the first episode of our podcast, Not Your Mama's Autism. I'm Lola Dada Ali. Thank you for joining me on this journey into autism through the lens of multiple viewpoints, family, culture, healthcare, race, education, mentorship, and allies. For you all to get the context needed to fully understand the aha moments made along the way, I figured we'd start at the beginning by taking you down memory lane a bit. I grew up with two of my three brothers in a suburb outside of Chicago in the 1980s and 90s. I'm the oldest of three children to my parents who I've interviewed as part of this episode. I have two little brothers, one brother, the middle child, who I've also interviewed for this podcast, and my baby brother, who is the genesis of all of this, and my greatest teacher. My baby brother was born in 1986, the year after our family moved into our new home. His name, Ayokunle, means joy has filled the house in Yoruba a language commonly spoken in Nigeria, where my family is from originally. We call him Kunle for short. Kunle developed in a pretty conventional way until sometime between 18 months and two years old, where my family started to realize that something had changed. My mom recently talked to me about those very early days in the journey. He stopped talking, and then he became very restless. Very restless, he won't sleep. So, my mom and dad took him to the pediatrician. Remember, this was the late 80s. Autism wasn't nearly as well known as it is now. Doctors at the time weren't exactly well known for giving out autism diagnoses or any form of neurodiversity that was outside that of the neurotypical, right? My dad, now in his 70s, still remembers the reaction of Kunle's pediatrician. What? Uh, the pediatrician, our pediatrician that time, told us uh, we, Mr. Mrs. Dada, you either have a problem in your hand or you have a kidney. Because they didn't know Not exactly a roadmap to next steps for two parents with questions they clearly needed answering. So, mom and dad started taking Kunle to specialists. So they started running all these tests. We went to Loyola University. We ran chromosome tests. We just ran so many tests because they were not sure what it was. Eventually, in 1989, at age three, my baby brother would be diagnosed with autism and intellectual disability, two words that would change the trajectory of my family. It would not only affect my baby brother's development, it would transform the way I would later navigate the world. It would even influence my decision to become an attorney later on in life. But I'll leave that for a future episode. Back to the late 80s. In 1989, an autism diagnosis may as well have been a death sentence. There weren't 
nationwide autism awareness campaigns, social media groups, or widely known treatments available like there is today. Parents were routinely being told by medical experts at that time that there was no hope. So there was an aim more towards containment and management of the disability and not towards awareness and acceptance, which is far more common today. As a result, both my parents ended up suffering while smiling to the outside world. Although their son was very much alive, they both were in the early stages of a grieving process, a loss of that original dream they had for their youngest child. He was slowly retreating into a world all his own, where it would be difficult for him to communicate with the outside world. He would exhibit behaviors such as excessive spinning, jumping, and placing the tip of his finger incessantly into the corner of his eye as forms of self-soothing. Watching your parents heartbreak over time as a young child is not easy to stomach. Seeing how others view your brother, sometimes as less than, still tugs at my heart in a way that is not yet fully explainable. These experiences made me look at childhood sometimes as optional. As the oldest child, my initial reaction was to protect Kune. Plus, I was being raised in a Nigerian family. I'm a first-generation American. I was supposed to take the baton of the American dream handed to me by my parents and continue running down that track. So, outside of my parents, the bulk of the family responsibility fell on me, and I would later internalize this heaviness for decades. Knowing how much my parents had to juggle with my baby brother, I kind of became a third parent. I put immense pressure on myself to try not to get into much trouble growing up because I had a front row seat to the challenges at home. My other brother, Wale, recently discussed with me how growing up with Kunle affected him. I mean, we were all very active children, you know, and uh, especially with me, like I just knew, like I always wanted to go outside. I always wanted to go play. I wanted to go run around the house and just do just anything. And my very earliest memories was um, Kuna was receptive to that at first, 
and you would kind of like engage in what I was doing, which I don't really know what I was doing, but I just remember he was engaging in what I was doing. And then it got to a point where he just kind of kind of wavered off and started doing things on his own, and he wasn't necessarily like with me anymore. We never explicitly said it to one another, but we both knew that in our own ways, we had to be Kunle's protectors. It was always like, you you didn't want them to look at your younger brother in that way, or you didn't, and at that point, we're still like, what, like end of the 80s, early 90s, and nobody really understood what was going on or, or how things were. And, you know, they point the finger, they say certain things, and then all you want to do is, was punch them in their face or fight them, you know, because, it, you know, it's your younger brother, and you were just so protective over, over what he was going through and, and how he felt. I took this as an opportunity to ask my little brother if he ever felt guilt, considering his place in the family. After all, he was the son who could talk. He was the son who went to college. He was the son who was able to play professional sports for a time. And now he owns his own business. In other words, he was the son who was able to do all the things that his baby brother couldn't. The guilt that I've I've carried is the idea that you know obviously it went it went you then me and then Kunle but like the guilt I had was that like I was in the middle and what could I have done differently to to break him out of whatever he he got into that was the guilt I, I had growing up like man maybe like you know I could have done this or I could have done more or whatever have you but I I, I definitely Spiritually, I think, and this might be a, a whole nother realm that that um, I'm, maybe you don't know about, you're not going to touch base on, but uh, spiritually, I, I used to question God to the fact of like, how come I'm able to, you know, especially like playing sports and and with my profession, I'll be able to interact with a, with a large crowd of people, but my brother is not able to do that. How can we complete, how can we be complete opposites in, in that aspect? And why was I given that gift and he wasn't? When one family member has autism, the whole family addresses the challenges related to it as well. There are sibling support groups now for families living with autism today. These groups were pretty non-existent when we were coming up. There's a term that I recently came across in a January 2020 article of Psychology Today known as parentification where a child takes on the traits of the parent and thereby either aids in parenting their sibling or, in some cases, even parents the parents. Growing up, Wale often referred to me as a 40-year-old trapped in a child's body. I regularly attended my brother's special education IEP meetings. I would ask teachers and administrators questions regarding how my brother was being educated and cared for. My parents managed to raise us in a school district that was considered quite good. My baby brother was able to access speech and occupational therapy available for that time. And he maneuvered his way through the public school system until he aged out in his early 20s. My brother really loved school. But despite best efforts available at that time, my brother's expressive communication really didn't evolve past those couple sign language expressions and physically guiding people to the fridge when he was hungry or to the garage when he wanted to go on a drive. 
despite being able to talk earlier on in life, he still remains nonverbal to this very day. I would watch my parents contemplate whether or not to put my brother on certain medication to regulate his behavior. They would sometimes withdraw from parts of their community who felt like they didn't understand Kunle and his challenges. I watched my brother at times get so frustrated for not being able to communicate his wants and needs that he would lash out by occasionally biting people. This behavior would be manageable as a little boy, but grew problematic as he moved into adolescence. Kunle was also affected by very loud noises. To this day, when he hears a blender, he'll stick his fingers in his ears to drive out the sound. No, because they don't know anything about this autism at Kunle's time. I wasn't offered much resources. They did not know what was wrong with Kunle. They did not know. So for a long time, we did not know what to do. They did not offer me much until he was much older. When I was 14 years old, I came across this book called Let Me Hear Your Voice by Catherine Maurice. It was about a mother who didn't have just one kid on the spectrum, but two. She also talked about some intensive therapy called Applied Behavioral Analysis, or ABA therapy. I had never heard of it. But therapy helped this woman's kids speak. I ran to my mom and told her about this book. She ended up not reading the book. And quite frankly, I was disappointed at the time that she hadn't read it, despite all my efforts of trying to get her to read this book. By that time, my mom learned how to functionally grieve. She worked full time as an ICU nurse while married to my dad and raising three children, one of whom clearly had profound special needs. Leisure book reading, book reading of, <laughs> book reading period probably, was not at the top of either of my parents' lists at the time. The following year, across the border in Wisconsin, Dr. Glenn Salos and Dr. Tamalyn Grobner founded the Wisconsin Early Autism Project and brought intensive ABA therapy to the state of Wisconsin. Nearly 20 years later, my son and then my daughter would not only be diagnosed with autism at the Wisconsin Early Autism Project, but they too would join many other Wisconsin children and start their ABA therapy journeys there as well. You see, that book wasn't meant for my mom. It was meant for me. My knowledge of ABA and the subsequent research I would do with Kunle in mind would end up being integral in getting my children the treatment they both needed early on in their development. My brother would turn out to be the blueprint upon which my children would later thrive. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed our very first episode. I hope you join us for our next episode, Boy Meets Girl, in two weeks. In episode two, I will introduce you to Tosa Ali, my husband, and we will talk about our journey through autism together, and we'll also interview other couples where at least one partner has a sibling with a disability. We talk about how each couple navigates caretaking as adults with rich, full lives of their own, and much more. See you in two weeks. Thank you.